Hello and welcome to Children of the 80s, the podcast where we talk about movies from the 80s. I'm Liana. And I'm Jamie. And we're talking to you today about Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters. Very exciting. Are you excited, Jamie? I'm, I'm excited for this one. Yeah, I'm excited too. There is actually not just a great film, but there's so much to talk about. I've been down a few research wormholes and I have a lot of exciting things. It's that like Tolstoy. There is so much to unpack. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So, this film came out in the middle of 1984. It did well. It grossed $282 million. It sat as the number one film for quite a while. And at that point, it was the highest grossing comedy to date. And that was interesting because there was a perception until this movie came out that there was kind of a ceiling on comedies. And that played into a lot about the history of the script and the production of the film because they didn't want to spend the budget on it. So Dan Aykroyd wrote the film with, rewrote the film with Ramis. His original pitch was for a much bigger film, a much Mm. bigger film. And in fact, he had, so this is really kind of Dan Aykroyd's baby. He wrote this film because he had a fascination with ghosts and with spirituality. And he came by that fascination from his family. So his family actually, yeah, his family wrote a book called A History of Ghosts. His mother claimed to have seen ghosts. He had grandparents. There were there were kind of ghosts all over the place here. I don't know if you take ghosts really seriously if this is the movie that you would write. Like, it, he doesn't really treat ghosts that seriously in the movie for the most part. So you're right. I mean, it's a comedy. It's a spiritual comedy. That's mm. the description. That's the genre. I think that's it might a, have been the first of its kind. It's a narrow genre, I'm going to be honest. Well, actually, I'd say the first of its kind, but... He wanted to bring back this film from films that he'd seen previously. So there was an Abbott and Costello film called Hold That Ghost. There was a film by Bob Hope called Ghost Breaker. I can't read my writing Ghost here. Ghost Breaker. Yep. And, uh, and then there was another one by somebody else famous of around that time. So there were, I guess, ghost so many films from his, to choose from. from his history. And he wanted to bring the genre back. So he had this really kind of big budget film in mind, and it depends on who you talk to, but apparently he was keen. Certainly his original plan was to make it with John Belushi. So there's a lot to unpack in what you just said. So let me start with the thing you said where he wanted to make a bigger movie. This is not a small movie. This is not some kind of, you know, one camera back of the studio movie. This is a big movie already. Yes, that's right. But his original film, they thought the budget to make the film would be about $200 million. And the budget for this film... Real ghosts? Yeah, they were hoping for real ghosts, but uh, apparently they weren't available at the time. So we're leaping ahead a little bit, but many of you who've seen the film will remember the Marshmallow Man. And he had in mind, actually, about 20 such giant creatures. All marshmallow men are different types? Different types. The mm. marshmallow man was meant to emerge from the East River in the first 20 minutes of the movie and they kind of pulled that back. But he also, original his original vision for the film was that there would be time travel, they would be going backwards and forwards in time and interdimensional travel and all kinds of stuff. So he'd originally approached Ivan Reitman, who mm. directed the film, and said that he wanted to he wanted to do it with him. So Ivan Reitman had just come off three films, Animal House. Yep which, of course, was written by Ramos. Yep. Sadly, not from the 80s, so... No, that's right. Here. We just miss out on Animal House. Meatballs, in which Bill yep. Murray had his first film appearance, and Stripes, in which Bill Murray appeared again, and Ramos also wrote it. So there was this kind of connection across all of those films. But Ivan Reitman was approached... It was intended that it was going to be a vehicle for Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi 
John Belushi passed away. Right, putting a flaw on the plan. So they couldn't make it with him. And again, depending on who you talk to, he was also really interested in working with Eddie Murphy. Yeah, that, that would be a great movie. I'd watch that. So he had to kind of go back and Reitman said, why don't you and Ramos sit yep. down and rework this? And when they pitched it, Reitman said, I reckon the budget's going to be about three times what we had for Stripes. This was not a well thought through plan. This was not a bottom up spreadsheet for the budget. What was the budget for Stripes? Do you know? I don't know. I think it was about 10 and I think this was about right, 30. Okay. So um, he was about right when he said that. Yeah, well, I mean, they certainly kind of made it work. But when they went off, they said, right, you're going to have the film back in 13 months. They didn't have a script. They didn't have a studio. And they didn't have a start date. <laughs> but they went and But they sat. had a general vibe. They had a general vibe. Yeah. And they had... Ghosts. Yeah, that was their plan. ghosts. Yeah. That was basically... That's all you need. Because I think Reitman had said, look, let's bring it back to Earth, literally. So we'll have it. We'll mm. set it on Earth. No time travel. And why don't we set it in New York? And they went on Ackroyd's holiday house in Martha's Vineyard and cranked it out in two weeks, cranked oh, out the right. script okay. in two weeks. There were a couple of, we'll come back to the cut scenes because there were some corkers that I want to talk about that were cut out. But yeah, very interesting start for the film. So that's a bit of the context and background. What yep. happens in the film, Jamie? So the plot starts with three paranormal scientists, a somewhat oxymoronic category, but uh, there they are. They're at a university, which you can tell is Columbia, but things are not going well and they get fired for basically not being real scientists. They go into private enterprise, setting up a ghost catching company, uh, again, a growth industry back in 1984. And then they go through a period of just building out that business. They catch some ghosts. They catch some more ghosts. Word spread. There's a good montage along the way when they're catching lots of ghosts. Along the way, Bill Murray becomes interested in a lady client, Sigourney Weaver, who's in a possessed building. And what you realize over time is that that building is actually the focal point of some quite confusing, and you may have to explain it to me, but a quite confusing effort to bring back a Sumerian god of some kind. That bit's a bit, bit shaky to me. And then, of course, at the end, they go to the building and there's the final confrontation with the chief bad guy ghost. And, of course, that leads to the uh, final victory of the Ghostbusters and their heroes. Exactly. Well, nicely summarized. One of the interesting things about this film, I talked about the script kind of coming a little bit after the pitch and the agreement to do the deal. And I think after some of the shooting, based on uh, some of the scenes that are in there, but yes. Well, certainly there was a lot of improv, and I think you're going to talk a little bit more mm. about that later, but one of the things that I really stands out in my memory about this film, and now that I understand the sequence in which things were done, it makes a lot of sense. This was the first film for which I had the merchandise before I saw the film. Oh, right. And actually, I have to say... so. As a kid, I had the stickers, and I was a sticker collector. So the stickers, Ghostbuster stickers, yeah, and the okay. stickers were like gold, man. Mm. But they conveyed. So Dan Aykroyd had the logo before they had the script, and he mm. even had the idea of the costumes well in advance of the movie. So he kind of knew what they were going to be. The things on the backs with giant. The proton packs, I believe, referring to. Yes, and he'd gotten that idea from reading an article in a parapsychology magazine about nuclear something, and you know this. And then he got this idea that maybe you could catch ghosts. So it's kind of funny, but it seems to be. But Dan Aykroyd is crazy. Yeah, a little more seriousness. So 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 basically, what you're telling me, Dan Aykroyd went to Ivan Reitman and he said, "Listen, I've got uh, ghosts." I've got this costume, 
I've got a sticker, and now I'd like $200 million. <laughs> well, that, no, that, that's, yeah, that's probably about right. And they said, we'll give you a little bit less than that. Yeah, still, getting 30 off that pitch isn't bad. I, 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 I respect that. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, it was a good bet, but it wasn't a bet that everybody was supportive of. At a different point in time, somebody had the lawyer from the studio come down to try and talk them out of the film. And one of the producers who said no and wanted to keep going was was quoted as being out of control. He's out of control, man. Oh, right. Okay. So, you know, I mean, not the best premise for success, Mm. but success nonetheless, as we've talked about a really successful film at the box office. So let's talk about the Ghostbusters themselves, right? So you've got the three scientists at the start, Harold Ramis, Bill Murray, and Dan Aykroyd. And then two thirds of the way through the movie, they pick up a fourth, Ernie Hudson. Yes. And I have to say that this was, you know, we're living through Black Lives Matter at the moment. And I have to say, this just felt like one of those things where when you watch the film, yes, he comes in later, but he's still... A fourth Ghostbuster. He's in it to win it. No, he's no, in he, it to yeah. win it. He's absolutely part he of the He crosses the streams. He's, he is yeah. part of the group at the end. And yet anytime people rock up to a party in costume, they don't come as four. Generally, they come as the three. So I, I have Maybe that's how they sell proton packs. Yes. Well, I have to wonder how well thought through that was, you know, whether it was added at the end, because there's also a quote from Aykroyd where he talks about in his mind, the three Ghostbusters are kind of like the Scarecrow, the Lion and the Tin Man. Mm. But I really like Ernie in this role. And for anyone who might be of a demographic to both have seen this movie, but also be seeing Frankie and Grace will recognise Ernie as Frankie's love interest. Oh, okay. Yeah, Ernie's sticking with it, still still doing the business. Um, Absolutely. And yeah. he, he did a lot of other interesting stuff. He was in the Basketball Diaries. Right, okay. He was in Miss Congeniality. He's a, a good actor. I really like they, him. They could have had him join earlier in the movie. It does feel like they thought of it midway through filming. That's sort of what I'm saying. And he he refers to that at the end, you know, when they're all getting in trouble, he's kind of like, hey, I just got here, you know, don't blame me. But they couldn't have done it without him, you know, at the end. Mm. Mm. There's there's some kind of moral in that, but not sure what it is. That's right. Can we talk about casting for a little bit? Yes, please. So we talked about Eddie Murphy. Now, he was under consideration for one of the main roles. Would have been very good. We've just talked about we've just talked about Ernie. He apparently had to audition five times, which feels hmm. unfair. Bill Murray, they had decided, I guess, because of Reitman's connection with Bill Murray, having yep. worked him, with him on the last couple of movies, they were keen to have him. But Bill Murray had a reputation for not deciding on a script until right at the last minute, and when he showed up. They were not sure whether he had read the script or not. He had a fairly laissez-faire attitude. I think when they finished the movie, they weren't sure if he'd read the script or not. (laughs) So uh, apparently a very significant portion of his lines he just made up on the spot. If you read the actual script from Ghostbusters and then watch the movie, it's two totally different movies. So anything in particular that you're aware of? Well, I'll tell you my favorite bit. So, And apparently I read an article by someone who worked on the movie. She said it was fairly common that the scene would start with Reitman saying, okay, Bill, now just do something funny to start the scene. No pressure. No, no pressure. No, no pressure. You know, 50 <laughs> people watching him. So when he goes to Dana's apartment, remember how he tinkles on the piano? He yeah. says, they hate that. Like, that was his thing, right? When, when they said do something funny, that's what he came up with. And the whole movie is full of those. You can see it. And he is such a dry character. Yes. He's a very good fit for the role. And you wonder how much they kind of changed the role to fit his character. But... 
Yeah, he certainly does that very well. We've talked about Ramos, who plays a very Ramos. Ramos. I don't know why I want to call him. Yeah, Ramos. I, I always called him Harold Ramos, but now I'm losing confidence because you've been calling. No, him no, Ramos I have no basis on which to make yeah, that yeah. judgment. I'm yeah. just his character Egon, very kind of upright and uptight. Yeah. Ackroyd is the slightly more scientific one. Is kind he? of. You know, I gotta, I, I gotta be honest. So, and as a child of the '80s, I feel terrible saying this, but I feel like. Having watched this movie, I just realized that Dan Aykroyd was kind of just hanging around the right places at the right time. Except, no, because he wrote the whole thing. Well, no, he wrote some $200 million time travel nonsense. No, the... there, there was very much a sense that the script was a, a right, okay. thing. No, okay. Well, okay, let me put it this way. I don't think he lights up the screen in this movie. No, he, he's not the dynamic presence. You could lose Dan Aykroyd and have a good movie. You could not lose Bill Murray and have anything like this movie. Yes, I totally agree with that. So some other interesting casting choices. Sigourney Weaver's fantastic. She's great. Not only is the kind of uptight cellist, yep. but then the possessed demon. Both good. They were unsure about her initially because their recollection of her was as a very serious actress. Mm. And so she did act as though she were possessed by the dog, which helped her get the role. Oh, in the audition, she did the... Okay. That's right. Her Yale acting chops came through. And I I do want to say on that, there's the scene when she's talking to the fellow musician in Lincoln Center. It feels like a totally different movie for two minutes. It does feel like a very sincere 1980s character drama. Yes, that's right. So yeah. she, uh, she does that well. Julia Roberts was in, in consideration for oh. the role, rejected. Yeah. I think Sigourney Weaver definitely had a face that did better with the very silver and bronze cheek shading that came with the possessed. Oh, look. right. Okay. Yeah. You, you have an attention to detail that I missed. Sure, sure. That's, I, that's I, how I, I do want to say. I, I do want to say for a cellist, she has a very nice apartment. Yes, <laughs> she does. She does. Rent control, presumably. Mm, yes. So speaking of the apartment, when we lived in New York, I have to say that I spent a lot of time trying to identify this apartment. And there were many New Yorkers who claimed to be able to point out which one it was. But I remember thinking that it never looked quite as spectacular as I remember it in the film. It didn't have demons coming down from the <laughs> heavens into that. it and lightning. And... There was that. But the film has gargoyles and, you know, it's a very yeah. gothic building. So the building is... 55 Central Park West. That's a real place. It is a real place, and it is next to the church that gets stomped on by the Marshmallow Man. Right, okay. But it was made fancier with the creative handiwork of artists who added gargoyles and all sorts of stuff. Right, it doesn't look like a real building, which makes sense because the top of it wasn't. That's right, yes. Can we talk about the song Ghostbusters for a bit? Yeah. So, first of all, great song. It was one of two things that uh, Ghostbusters was nominated for an Oscar for. So one of them was Best Visual Effects. There are three... Sorry, I just... I did my research on the Oscars. So there are three nominees for Best Visual Effects this year. It, it lost to Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, mm-hmm. which you can see. The other nominee that year was 2010, The Year We Make Contact, which I'm now quite curious about as a movie. I'd wow. like to go see that. I have no recollection of that film. No, neither do I. But wow. at, the, at the time, that was 25 years in the future. And then it was also nominated for Best Song. It did not win. Uh, the song that won was I Just Called to Say I Love You. Well, that is wonder. a good song, yeah. And the other and it is better than Ghostbusters. <laughs> yes. The, um, the other nominees that year, Take a Look at Me Now, the Phil Collins song. I hate Phil Collins. Do you? Yes. Right, okay. <laughs> I can't stand him. Well. It's really uh, wet. 
wet. And then two songs from Footloose. Footloose, let's hear it for the boy. Oh, well, so, that's, a, that's a pretty strong... 1985, a great year for movie songs. Yeah, a pretty strong yeah. crew. Um, 1985, of course, was at the Oscars was the year that Amadeus cleaned up. Oh, uh, yeah. Which you also understand. Um, it was also, sorry, I've been down my own rabbit hole, the year that Gunther Scheidt won the Scientific and Engineering Award for the development of improved non-toxic fluid creating fog and smoke for motion picture production. Nice one. Yeah. I suppose that's very important. I'm, I, I've said all I'm going to say on the Oscars. Well, when I was at school, we had a repeated issue with our smoke machine in that we, in rehearsals for a play, kept setting off the smoke alarm and bringing the fire department. It happened to us about eight times. Right. Well, if Gunther Scheidt had been at your school, I know, would have we, you would, out. we would have been in much better shape. And it was non-toxic. Non-toxic. There you go. So one of the things that we both commented on when we were watching the movie was that we both remember the librarian as being super old. Oh, yeah. She was ancient. So I did some maths. Mm -hmm. There were two. So there's the librarian and then there's the library ghost. They were different actresses. Good point. Yeah. Um, And there's actually a third one because then the ghost kind of loses all flesh and becomes a skeleton and How many librarians out. are in this movie? Well, there's the well, three. I guess, I guess three. Yeah, yeah, I got the same figure. Yep, keep going. So the first one who appears, who in our memory was, was old, was 56. <laughs> <laughs> right. Amazing uh, she was still alive to film. And then the second uh, was 74. Right, okay, that's that's legit old. And then the skeleton with the teeth who came out. I, I'm not sure if they're age. I think that was just a skeleton. You know, I, I, I will say, I did like the fact that the ghosts looked very cheesy. I think this would have been a worse movie if you'd had modern-day CGI, because they wouldn't have been able to help themselves. The ghosts would have been terrifying, and it would have been a very different feel. Well, the interesting thing about the ghosts, from my perspective, is the inconsistency amongst them. Mm. So I mentioned earlier that I was a little bit disappointed about the disconnect between the logo and the film. I think I was expecting something cartoony and fun. Yeah, more like guys in bedsheets ghosts-ish. Well, even a cartoon, because the logo was a cartoon. And then the movie was, in my memory, scarier than when I watched it this time. You know, it makes Harry Potter look like a scary film. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you make a good point. Maybe I want to flip that That, round. That's a powerful Harry Potter makes this one look like a cartoon, by comparison. It's not very scary, but as a kid, I remember it being quite scary. And I think it's because I had that image. So there's a little white ghost. Yeah, yeah, and the only the ghost that looks anything like that is green, the blobby ghost. Yeah, yeah, But then the other ghosts were quite different. There's the kind of, so there's Marshmallow Man, there's the but there's skeleton the ghost. skeleton ghost. There's the stuff, the weird thing in the fridge, which isn't really a ghost, but it's clearly evil somehow. That's right. And then there's, um, at the end, there's Goza, who yeah. is the... Unitard ghost. Yes, based on Grace Jones and David Bowie's kind of look. So, oh, right, yeah, that's yeah, so unitard and asexual kind of. Well, Liana, as Dan Aykroyd is a ghost expert, would should know what they look like, so he probably just took from the diversity of real ghosts, yeah. But it, it, it speaks a little bit to the budget and the fact that things were kind of being done in different places, it doesn't feel coherent. It's not like there's a kind of a cluster of ghosts and this is what they all look it like. It does feel like most for the movie they were planning about 15 minutes of screen time ahead. They didn't really know where they're headed at points. Yeah, I think that could be right. The other thing that I went down a rabbit hole on was the mythology, because I thought if Dan Aykroyd was so interested in these things, it's possible some of the very detailed explanations about the Sumerian and Mesopotamian origin stories might have some basis in truth. In fact, they do not. 
None of the names. They were not real ghosts. No, no, not ghosts. No, no, <laughs> they weren't. You know, they weren't. These aren't gods. actual legends. Yeah, because also they're not ghosts in the film. That's true. They're evil gods. They're gods who are coming back. I mean, the whole plot is a bit weird, right? The, the, yeah. It's the rising of the dead, so the ghosts represent the rising of the dead. And and when they are summarizing the Sumerian mythology, that felt more like a horror film, right? That's a very familiar dark trope about. This German from the 1920s builds a building specially designed. and So that, again, there are a number of tonal shifts in this movie that probably weren't intentional. Yeah, that's right. But there were, there was some basis. So Aykroyd, when asked the question, you know, did any of this come? Because it's very detailed. When you go back and you kind of look at the quotes, the names are very detailed that they give to the, the gods and what happened to them, you know, what mm. they're in 6000 BC and then this and this and this. Because Zul is the name of the possessed Sigourney Weaver character. But Gozer is the only name that has any basis in history. And importantly, Gozer is the name of a Chevy dealership in New York, or it was. But also, Gozer was written on the site of a reported series of paranormal activities in England. So there's a book that was published in 1980 about this and Gozer had been written on the walls. And so that was the inspiration for the choice of Gozer. So I'm just going to come out and say, at no point did I understand what the evil (laughs) plot was, the key mask, like the Gozer, the Zool, there's some other, like, I had no idea what was going on with that. I just knew there were bad ghosts and the Ghostbusters had to go get them. Yes, it was very convoluted. But my little bit of understanding was that the key master needed to connect to the gatekeeper in order to open up the portal between oh, okay. the right. other world and earth and the rising of all the ghosts that's the rising of the dead signals that this event is about to happen and then those guys come back and then i think they're going to take over the world they're going to end the world and kind of reclaim it for their own right ghostly purposes Go- no no godly purposes Right, but evil godly purposes. I suspect you have thought more about the plot of Ghostbusters than any human in the last decade, but I commend you for that. You know, I would agree with you had I not been down many tranches of fan fiction. There are a lot of people who've thought very deeply. So you're saying that on the internet, people have actually been talking about Ghostbusters? That's hard to believe. Yeah, absolutely. So I do have one other plot question for you, because you're obviously an expert on this, Leona. (laughs) So there's the evil guy from the EPA. Yes. And he shuts down the something-something box and all the ghosts they've captured escaped. Yes. But does that end up having anything to do with Gozer and the plot? It it sort of felt like... Yes, it does. Oh, right. Okay. Well, there are two things. So... One is that the it's tenuous, actually. So they've captured all these ghosts and they've kept them in the nuclear storage facility, something, mm. something. And the EPA guy, despite best advice, shuts it all down because he's worried about the environmental impact and thinks they're just a bunch of charlatans. Yes. So he shuts it down and then all the ghosts escape, escape yep. which leads to chaos and mayhem that means that the Ghostbusters take their eye off the Rick Moranis character who has been possessed and who is the key master. And so what they were doing, and they knew that they needed to keep... Well, they were talking about maybe they should get the key master and the gatekeeper together. So that's mm. the Sigourney Weaver and the Rick Moranis character. And then I think Bill Murray says, no, I think that'd be a bad idea. Yep. So they were trying to keep them separate in the chaos that erupts as the purple laser beams shoot out of the roof and everything kind of erupts. Rick Moranis wanders off and he connects with the gatekeeper. They have uh, a wild few moments of passion. 
They do, and I, I'm sorry you don't see at least a little bit of Rick Moranis and Sigourney <laughs> Weaver getting it on. That's that's a scene that should have been filmed. Well, and they do they do some nice setup with that. So he's the neighbor. He totally has the hots for Sigourney yeah. Weaver. He is not the highest EQ character. He's an accountant. She Nothing has wrong with accountants. Agreed to come to his party, which is all his clients, because it's a tax write off. And she's signaled to him that she's not that into him. But when she's possessed by Zul, she's a whole different lady who is very much interested in him in particular. Right. Okay. Totally crystal clear. I now understand everything that happened in this movie. So I do want to talk about the bad guy from the EPA. First of all, unusual choice for a villain, the EPA. Not normally what you think of as big oppressive government. And it was never clear what exactly he thought was wrong at the building from the ghost storage. I think it was the word nuclear storage facility. Well, okay, you're making a powerful point. So that actor was also a bad guy in Die Hard, which I quite liked. Um, So I enjoyed that. I also think I love the scene in the mayor's office where the evil EPA guy finally gets his comeuppance. I love that too. And you made the comment offline that this was quite a long scene where they really Mm. plan out what they're going to do. I think it's very realistic. It is kind of what would be happening. He'd be getting advice from all different people. The mayor would be in trying to kind of make a decision. But he eventually decides that the EPA guy is out of there and that he believes Bill Murray and the other guys. And they say, get him out of here, which is very satisfying. And he plays that role very well that straight man yes yes i agree so you talked about being a little bit confused by the plot of the film i get confused easily though. i know i know but i wonder whether you would have been less confused if these two scenes hadn't been cut out oh i'm ready so one was the asylum haunted by celebrities <laughs> <laughs> do they say which celebrities no but i really would have liked to have seen that i think that would have yeah. been it Quite fantastic. And the second was an illegal ghost storage facility in a New Jersey gas station. Right. I would have loved to see those deleted scenes. I hope they still exist somewhere. So should we talk about afterlife, so to speak, of Ghostbusters? Absolutely. Yeah, I did see (laughs) See what what I did did there. there. Yeah. So they did make a sequel, Ghostbusters 2, which was okay. Apparently, Dan Aykroyd really wanted to make a third one. Bill Murray was not having a bar of it. Dan Aykroyd kept sending him scripts, and Bill Murray started returning them, having shredded them. Oh, yeah. that's so it's, tough. My understanding was he was still on about it. when Even now. When Ramos passed away in right. 2014, I think. Yeah, that's right. So you talked about the sequels, but I think not just the sticker, but this was a movie where the money was in merchandising. It sure was. So there were two animated spin-offs, TV series spin-offs, Real Ghostbusters and Extreme Ghostbusters. There were video games, which yeah. I know you're oh. going to talk about. Yeah, well, well, there's not much to say, but I did play the Ghostbusters game for the Commodore 64. And let me tell you, it was a hoot. Basically, you just trapped ghosts over and over and over again, but... You know, when you're 10, that's actually very satisfying and fun. There were apparently board games, although I certainly didn't ever I'm see sure one. I'd want to play a board game of this. Comic books. Yep. Clothing. The, the, the t-shirt was big, yep. you yep. might recall. I certainly yep. do. Music we've talked about. Books. Food. I don't food. know what the food. Marshmallows. Slime. Toys. Loads yep. of toys. Well, the big money's got to have been in the Halloween costumes. Well, you, they're still going. You still see Ghostbusters? They're still going. I mean, I can think of three Ghostbusters costumes in the last three years that people have rocked on. I think it's a very recognizable costume that's not that hard. Yeah, that's right. And the other thing which seems like an obvious spin-off, and probably there are lots of other films with it, but the haunted attractions at the hmm. State Fair, the Royal Easter Show, 
I'm translating here State Fair for the American audiences, Royal Easter Show for the Australian audiences. Uh, bilingual. I would have said that those predated Ghostbusters. Well, yes, not the idea of them, but the merchandised, themed version. Right, okay. So sure, there was, you know, the awful, yeah, creepy yeah. The one they did house. in school where they'd peel grapes and they yeah, said Yeah, but this eyeballs. was, the, you know, the Ghostbusters-themed yeah. one. Right, okay, got it. Yep, with you. So loads of merchandising. I don't know how much money was made off that, but my guess is... A lot. Mm. A lot. One other person who missed out on the casting, Sandra Bernhardt, was given the role of the receptionist and rejected it, which was taken on by Annie Potts. And you always think to people, like, kick themselves endlessly because... I mean, it wasn't a huge role. but a good role, though. Annie Potts did well with it, I thought. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she made a lot out of that. The other character I quite enjoyed were the, the two students at the very, very beginning when Bill Murray is testing them for ESP. And the woman from that, the blonde woman who he pretends is getting the questions right, is Jennifer Runyon, who went on to go uh, star as Cindy Brady in one of the Brady remakes. Wasn't she also in Charles in Charge? I don't know. I, I think so. I think she was the kind of love interest in Charles in Charge. We'll leave this as a puzzle for the listeners. But she was certainly that. very, very familiar. Yes. And he was, he's pretty sleazy in that yes. scene. <laughs> yes, he is. You sort of forget actually quite how sleazy. It feels a little bit different in the Me Too era, to be honest. It does. And he's also, he's pretty determined with Sigourney Weaver. And she's yes. pretty clear that she's not interested until yeah, yeah, yeah. she is interested. Yes. When she's possessed by a demon. Well, she, when she's possessed by a demon, that's right. But like even, she actually agrees to a date. And then he turns up, and this is when we know he's a man of honour because he turns up and she's there. The, Ready for the, the yeah. gold paint and the orange wispy outfit, and she's. He just tucks her into bed. And he or says, over bed, Yeah, that's right, over her bed because she hovers. Yes. So that special effect, interestingly, was. Where Sigourney Weaver is floating over her bed? Yes, I don't exactly get how this works, although having done a similar illusion at a in my Girl Scout troop, I have some idea. Hmm. So if you hold your body up and then you have legs under a sheet cloth so you have like yep. you hold the sticks which have shoes on them and then you use one hand you can like levitate yourself up so long as you've got a sheet covering you in this scene apparently she had a body cast and then the thing that they spun her around on is hidden by a curtain but most of the special effects were actually very low tech because right. this is sort of pre-cgi yeah, yeah of course the green ghostbusters do you remember there was quite a lot of hype about that because that mm. was computerized and that was like very exciting but most of the other special effects the marshmallow man they just got a bunch of giant marshmallows the marshmallow man is fantastic Uh, i I don't get quite how they did it was just somebody in a suit oh yes in fact you can see his feet (laughs) can you yeah there's some bad green screening at that point in time but and then the special effects for the marshmallows where he gets blasted of course are just kind of masses of shaving cream yeah actually watching it now you realize they've just sprayed a bunch of shaving cream everywhere which full respect that's what i would have done as well interestingly everybody else has their face covered in shaving cream except for bill murray yeah, you sort of get the sense that as they were doing it, Bill were just refused. Yeah, he's so, like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm the star. You can't make me. I'm yeah. not doing it. So, fun special effects. The film was shot in New York as well as in LA. Mm-hmm. You can New tell York, it's in New York. Yeah. You can. And New York was not the film destination that it is now. It was considered yep. to be a really bad idea to film in New York. Dangerous, gritty, and kind of Permit liable problems. to lead to yeah. financial ruin. And the city wasn't nearly so friendly. Now in New York, every yeah. block they're making a film. But they did, so they did some of the shooting in, in New York and then they came back. And the other thing was that there weren't special effects guys in New York. There wasn't right. a film industry. So they had to kind of come back to LA and do most of the other stuff when they right. got back there. Including, I'm assuming, the earthquake scene from out the front, which I know is at Universal Studios, but where they use that earthquake 
I mean, with the street buckles because... Yes. Yes. I got the feeling that scene was in there because they had the road that buckled like that. Because it really serves no purpose. There's just an earthquake, they fall in a hole and they come back out. Yeah, I think that could be right. So look, we've talked a lot about the film, facts about the film. What do you think of the film? How do you feel about the film? I love it. I love it, really. So I love it in part, it is genuinely a good movie, right? Like it's fun to watch. It pulls you through it. Bill Murray in particular is fantastic, but it's a great cast. And I also love it because it is such an 80s movie, right? It just feels so of the era. It's so iconic. And it had such a big cultural afterlife that it feels like there's a whole sort of period of a couple of years that were the Ghostbuster years. So it really brought me back. So I loved it. It was a joy to watch. What did you think? Yeah, look, I, I really enjoyed it too. And I think you've talked a lot about the kind of holes in the plot, but I actually think without getting into the complexity of the supernatural stuff, the underlying structure of the movie and the script around it moves well. There's the right number of characters and each of the characters is quite well drawn, even when they only come in for a short period of time. So the EPA guy, Sigourney Weaver's uptight violin. Yep. Quasi-boyfriend, the, the receptionist. Yep. They're all well-drawn yes. characters, the hotel guy. And it's funny. Bill Murray yes. is funny. The fact that every scene has good jokes in it is very helpful. I really like the fact that there's a comedy and not an action comedy. The final battle is only a few minutes long. There's not endless back and forth and shooting and running and jumping. It's They're just there to be funny and tell jokes and draw you into this quite quirky but very alluring world. Absolutely. And there's enough tension. Things escalate. And the great scene where Goza is saying, whatever you think of, your greatest fear is what we will attack you <laughs> as. And they're all, you know, clear your mind, clear your mind. And then they hear the thumping and they all look at Dan Aykroyd and he looks so guilty. Yes. You know, what did you do? I mean, I have to say, gosh, can anyone clear their mind when they want to? No, you know, (laughs) I would have come up with far worse things, but that's a great scene. And, you know, there's good dramatic tension, good resolution, good music, some fantastic crowd scenes. So everybody's really into the Ghostbusters. They're on TV. They're popular. They're behind them. They want them to succeed and then they do succeed. And then it's a very kind of New York... The police are there and the fire department's there and the the rabbis are there and the, the priests are, are there, there and the nuns are there. <laughs> it's all happening. And the Hare Krishnas are there yep. standing and waving. It's just a very, we are the world, New York, crazy moment. And yep. it, it works really well. It's a film that holds up well. I really liked it. It's a great movie. So that's it for Children of the 80s. Thank you for joining us to talk about Ghostbusters. And we'll see you, see next, you next time. time.